Amen. You can have a seat. <clears throat> Today we bring to a close this series of lessons that I'm calling Legacy, and we've been thinking about the, the legacy that people leave with us, a legacy of faith where they build into our lives, and maybe they're our teachers, or we have conversation, and all this helps us grow in our faith. All these things are part of growing in our faith, and we've also talked about how we want to leave a legacy behind us. And really that's what all these decorations are about. This week of Vacation Bible School, it's leaving a legacy of faith with the people who come behind us. Now, today I want us to think just one more time, if you will, about those people in your life. Think back of, of who it is that taught you and shared their faith and spent time talking about their faith that's helped you grow to the point that you are today. And let me suggest that as a part of this series, you take some time this week and maybe make a phone call or write a little note and let some of those people know just how important they are in your life. Maybe some of them have already passed and all we can do is really give thanks to God for those people, but if they're still with us, take a few minutes because they may not know just how much you have impact, how much they have impacted your life. And to hear you say that can really be an encouragement. So, so do that for them. And then also, we also want to think about what's the legacy that I'm leaving behind. I mean, if you look back in your life, how have you shared your faith with someone who's coming behind you? What do they know because you were present? How have they been encouraged because you are present in their lives? And maybe you look at that and like a lot of us say, I've missed some opportunities, right? There are some things I could have done that I failed to do. There are words I probably should have said. There are times when I should have been present and I was not. But the truth is we can't change anything that's happened in the past, but we can change the future. And maybe you're really young and you're just beginning to find ways to build other people up and that's awesome. You're in a good place and, and this is a time to make those decisions so you do it. But if you're like me and have been at it for a while, there's still opportunities to do that. So think through how you can leave a legacy of faith. Now, as we think about that, it strikes me that we are saying when we talk about a legacy of faith that, that God is at work in us. And that God is helping us pass on faith in Jesus Christ and trusting him with this life and for eternity. And if we do that, we are a people of hope. Now, hope's not always easy, right? It is sometimes difficult to, to be a hopeful people. And in my house, I am not known as exactly like the resident optimist. Okay, I like to think of myself as a realist, like I'm real about what's going on and, you know, I'm trying to prepare for all those eventualities. They probably wouldn't call it realist. There's probably other things that they would label that as. But anyway, even optimists in our culture can look around and get a little discouraged, right? I mean, we see what's going on around us and think, man, there's a, lot, there's a lot of tragedy. There's a lot of brutality. There's a lot of sin. And it is disconcerting. It's discouraging to see the paths that people have taken and just how destructive some of those paths are for those people and, and really for the people around them and for our whole culture. And it's easy to get negative and think, man, things are, things are bad and they're getting worse and I don't see it changing. But you know, one of the things I've noticed is that in my life, there's always been people around me 
even when I was a kid, right, and the people who like are the age I am now that I thought were really old, were, they were saying things are awful, things are getting worse, it's never been as bad as it is now. And probably, you know, a few years from now, people are going to be saying back in the 20s, it was so much easier, right? And we don't see that right now. If we look back in the history of humanity, what we find is that human beings have an incredible propensity for sin and brutality and ugliness. And that's just gone on from the beginning right through now. But we see that and we begin to be a people who don't sound like we have much hope. We seem like we lack hope. So the question is, if we Christians really are a people of hope, and the truth is we're called to be a people of hope all the way through the Bible and certainly the New Testament, how do we leave a legacy of hope? And today, that's what I want us to think about. We're going to look at one more story in this series from the book of Acts and the early history of the church. It's probably the most famous story that we find in the book of Acts. It's in Acts chapter 9. We've sort of alluded to it a couple weeks ago, but today I want us to think about it in a little more detail. So Acts chapter 9, Luke introduces or sort of reintroduces a man named Saul, a man who was completely opposed to this new Jesus movement. What we find out from Saul, who became Paul from his own letters that we have in the New Testament, is that early on in his life, he was like totally sold out as someone who wanted to follow the law of God. Like he was serious about it. He spent his life studying it, memorizing it. He calls himself a Pharisee of Pharisees, which means he was an expert in the law. And not only that, he was zealous to keep the law. Like he was going to do it, but he was going to also make sure other people obeyed too. And the biggest threat that he saw to his people, the Jews, in the first century was this movement that had come about that was following this wonder worker, teacher named Jesus. And all these Jews were being led to follow this Jesus. The, the Romans had crucified him, they'd killed him, but there were rumors that he'd been raised from the dead and Suddenly people are calling him God and all this is going on and, and Saul says, i got to put a stop to this. And so Saul would hunt down these Jesus-following Jews and have them arrested and then tried for failing to follow the law. And in fact, he was so zealous, he would go to the high priest and get letters to synagogues in other cities outside Jerusalem, outside Judea, so that he could go to other places find Jesus-following Jews, arrest them, bring them back to Jerusalem, and have them tried for disobeying the law. And in fact, that's what's going on at the beginning of Acts chapter 9. Paul has gone to the high priest, gotten letters to the synagogues in Damascus, saying, if there are people who are following Jesus, let Paul, Saul, take them back to Jerusalem because, man, they are messed up and they're going to mess other people up. And so Saul took those letters and he was on his way to Damascus. And you may remember that he didn't even get to Damascus before God acted. And we find that in Acts chapter 9, beginning in verse 3. As Saul neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. Now, throughout the Bible, when you see a bright light, that usually means God. That signifies the presence of God. So that's probably what Saul thought when this light flashes around him. But then the voice, this confuses him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Well, hang on here. 
if this is the, the voice of God, why is God saying, why are you persecuting me? Because for Saul, the only people he was after were people who were disobeying God, people who were failing to follow God. So what is this about? So Saul asked the question, who are you? I mean, what, what are you talking about? And the answer comes back at the end of verse 5, I'm Jesus whom you are persecuting. Now get up and go into the city and you'll be told what you must do. I am Jesus. Those words, that, that changes everything. Because up till this point, Saul had spent his time trying to, to, to blot out this influence of Jesus, to end this Jesus movement so it didn't corrupt Judaism anymore. And suddenly he's hearing the voice of God saying, I am Jesus. And so he's confronted with the fact that these Christians who have been worshiping Jesus as God, as Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament, they're right. And he's been wrong all along. So Jesus is God. And if he's God, he's to be obeyed. He's to be worshiped. And as Saul is grappling with all this, he realizes that he can't see a thing. In the process of this light, in the conversation with God, he's been blinded. So this man who comes with the authority of the high priest, expecting to come in and strong arm everyone, is led from that spot by hand into Damascus because he can't see anything, to the place where he was going to stay. And there he is, and he fasts and prays for three days, waiting on what this voice told him that you'll be told what to do. Now, sometimes we think about fasting and we think, okay, that's, that's where you fast so you can figure out what God wants you to do. Like it's a decision to be made. But many times in Scripture, what fasting is about is grief and guilt. People fast because they've done something wrong or because they don't know what should be, what, what they, they're, they're grieving over what they have done. So, so here's Saul grieving over the way that he's treated the followers of Jesus and feeling guilt over the fact that he's disobeyed God and waiting on something. But God wasn't just at work in the life of Saul. He's at work in the lives of others. And so, as always, throughout the gospel or throughout the book of Acts, what we find is the Spirit of God at work in a number of different ways and certainly is true in this story. And so God speaks through a vision to another man a man named Ananias, a common name in the ancient world. And so we find there's this Ananias, there's another Ananias in the story of Acts as well. But, but this person God speaks to sort of on behalf of Saul. Verse 10, in Damascus there was a disciple, so he's a follower of Jesus, named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord said to him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul. For he's praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. So God calls out to Ananias, and immediately Ananias is ready. God, yes. He's ready to do whatever God wants him to do. And he's sort of like us. We're ready to do whatever God wants us to do until we find out what it is God wants us to do, right? Because it may be harder than we expected. And he's ready to follow God until God says, listen, I want you to go to talk to this guy named 
Saul, who's from Tarsus, he's, he's with this man named Judas on Straight Street. But you see, Ananias knew about Saul. Saul's reputation for his zeal for God had preceded him. And Ananias knew about the letters from the high priest, and he knew that Saul was there to arrest the Jesus-following Jews in Damascus. And he's not sure about going to visit this guy. What if, what if this is all a trick? What if Saul's playing a game? But God continues his message to Ananias to make it completely clear what's going on. Verse 15, But the Lord said to Ananias, Go. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Ananias, this is, this is big. Because as it sort of is the theme through the, the book of Acts, we've got this interplay of Jesus is a Jew, the early Christians are Jews, but this message is spreading to the Gentiles. And God says, this man Saul is a key to all that. He is going to be one of the ones to take the message to the Gentiles. This message of Jesus is bigger than just the people of Israel. It's about all of humanity. And Saul's got a mission, and it's not going to be easy. I'm going to show him how he's going to suffer. But he's going to share the message of Jesus even with the Gentiles, but also the Jews. And so Ananias relents because God has made it clear that there is a, a mission and a message. He goes to talk to Saul. And he enters this house on Straight Street and he says, listen, I'm here because God has told me to come and I'm going to, I'm going to take and give to you the, the powerful gifts of the Holy Spirit. And Scripture says at that moment, something like scales falls from Saul's eyes. Now, I don't know about you. I don't know exactly what that was like. When I was a kid, I had scales sort of like, like you would weigh something, and that really didn't make any sense to me, okay? I think it's probably more like fish scales, but I don't know. Whatever the case is, suddenly Saul could see. And Ananias taught him everything he needed to know about Jesus, and he was baptized. And immediately... He doesn't wait to go back home to, to Tarsus. He doesn't wait to go back home to, to the, the place where the, the early Christians are gathered in Jerusalem. In Damascus, immediately following the decision to become a Christian, Saul begins to preach and teach the name of Jesus. You see, Saul knew the Old Testament. He had this incredible context of everything that was said about the Messiah, and he is primed and ready, but he didn't know it, to talk about Jesus. And so as soon as he comes to faith, he's ready to preach and teach the name of Jesus to Jews, Gentiles, anyone who will listen. So what do we learn from this story? I mean, there's so much more in the book of Acts that you can read about Saul, and certainly he gives glimpses of all of this in his letters as well. But, but what strikes me, of all the lessons we could learn, and there's plenty more than just what I'm going to talk about today, what strikes me is that this is a story that establishes hope. Because here you've got a guy who has done everything he can to oppose Jesus, and suddenly he becomes a Christian. 
And what I find is that we base our hope in God's power to change us. I mean, what we're saying is that God has the power to change things. God has the power to make things better primarily because he has the power to change people, to make people better. Now, a lot of times we look in our world and say, ah, people don't change, right? They'll show their true colors eventually. They'll show who they are eventually. But what we as Christians believe is that people can actually change. They can be better, like Saul. There's, there's example number one right there. And if Saul could change, anybody can change. And that is a message of hope. Now we look around in our world and feel like there is no hope. And we lose track of the power of stories like the story of Saul. And we end up being hopeless when we should be a people who are hopeful, filled with hope. And our hope comes from the fact that God can actually change people. Now, if we want that hope to become part of who we are, I think we've got to encourage it. And there's all sorts of things that we could do. I'm going to list three. The first is to put your hope, your trust in God alone. Now, we look in our world and it does look like things are messed up. And sometimes we think if we could just, like if we could just get the right person in office, right? If we could elect the right president or senator, governor, if we could get the right people on the Supreme Court, if whatever it is, we think if we could get all that right, then things would be better. So it's easy to put our hope in politicians or the government or even a nation. And the truth is, if you read through Paul's letters, he never says, you know, if we, could just, if we could just get the right emperor in Rome, then things would really be good. He never says that. Over and over, what Saul, who becomes Paul, does is point people to Jesus. Over and over for Saul, it's all about Jesus. Why? Because he knew what had changed him. And it was an encounter with Jesus. And he knew that the power was really always still with Jesus. And that Jesus would always be Lord. No matter who's the president, or who's on the Supreme Court, or who the governor is, or who's on the city council, or anything else. And so just as Paul did, the best thing that we can do to maintain hope is to put our trust in God alone. Second, know that things will change. Change is uncomfortable, right? One of the reasons we look around and feel uncomfortable about where our culture is is because it's changed. And there are times when we look back to simpler times and think, man, I wish we had this or that or the other. And the truth is we're never going to get that back, right? Because that's done. It's not coming back. And that makes us uncomfortable because we long for what seemed like a simpler time, even though it probably wasn't to at least some people who lived then. But we look back at that and wish it was like that, and we idealize the past. Well, guess what? The, the constant in all this is change. And there are going to be people who years from now are going to long for it this day. And it's going to be gone. 
and the things that we're doing in this day are not going to come back. And as uncomfortable as that makes us, we have to recognize that change doesn't mean that we should be hopeless. We know there's going to be change. But Jesus is still Lord. And that's what matters the most. And even though there will be change, we're confident in what stays the same. And that's Jesus. And then finally, what we see today is not the end. As messed up as our world sometimes feels, that's not the end. As messed up as it was a hundred years ago and a thousand years ago and maybe a thousand years from now, that's not the end. We're given a picture of what is yet to come, several places in Scripture. Sometimes it's hard to understand, man, you read the book of Revelation, it's difficult. Get to the last couple chapters, it gets a little simpler. Heaven and earth come together. God is with us. We spend eternity praising God. That's pretty simple. And because of that, we should be a people of hope. There's a great passage that we read over in 1 Thessalonians, it was a letter written by this same man, right? Saul becomes Paul. He's preaching the message of Jesus. One of the first letters that he writes is this letter to the Christians in Thessalonica. And in chapter 4, I read this passage a lot at gravesides or in funerals because it's good for us who are followers of Jesus to hear. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 13, Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death, so Christians who've already died so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. I don't want you to be like the people who are hopeless. Read the rest of that passage. He goes on to paint a picture of what is yet to be. We are people of hope because we believe in Jesus. And we believe that Jesus changes lives and changes the world around us. And because of that, we can leave a legacy of hope so that our children, grandchildren, the people who follow behind us are not hopeless. Let's pray together. God, help us to be a people of hope who are full of hope, so full of hope that the people around us see it. God, help us to share the hope that we find in Jesus. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and we'll continue to worship.